0: You could describe the Bible a lot of ways, a story of grace and redemption, a story of God's plan, lots of different ways that you could approach it and describe it. But one of the ways, maybe most overlooked, is that the Bible is a story of conflict. And redemption really begins with a conflict between Man and God. And even in the very beginning, the Lord declares himself in Genesis chapter 3. He says to woman, he says, I will put, excuse me, to, to Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Those are God's words in the Garden of Eden. Shortly after the fall of man. It's an important verse right from the beginning because it teaches us an important lesson about conflict. It teaches us that God not only responds and wants us to respond to conflict in the right way, it teaches us that God ordains it, that God has created it. He says he would put it there. He's ordained conflict, he ordains it because, quite frankly, it accomplishes his purposes. It's not to say that it pleases God, it's not to say that we're ever to seek out conflict or intentionally stir up trouble or become one of those kinds of troublemakers. In fact, we're repeatedly commanded in Scripture that we are to resolve conflict and to bring about peace as often as possible. Romans 14, pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Ephesians 4, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Hebrews 12, pursue peace with all men and sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So conflict certainly doesn't please God. And he tells us that everywhere we look, that we're to be, we're to be peacemakers. But still, the scripture teaches us that God ordains conflict teaches us that truth, and so it ought to be a part of our understanding as we encounter it. And with that understanding, we ought to understand that the Lord accomplishes His will through it. Joseph understood this. Remember Joseph from the book of Genesis? He was in conflict a lot, beginning with his brothers who threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery and carried him off to Egypt. It led to all kinds of troubles and years in prison, lost time for him, trouble with people there as he was constantly being misunderstood and misrepresented and falsely accused. He found himself in conflict over and over again. And yet when it's all said and done, you come to the end of the book of Genesis and you find in chapter 50, one of those marquee verses in all of scripture where Joseph declares you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph understood that God ordained all of it. Or even we're told when Judas portrays Jesus. And all the nation of Israel. Those who are his own. Turns against him. And they call for his execution. His crucifixion. Peter tells us in Acts 2.23. That this man was delivered over. This man Jesus Christ was delivered over. By the predetermined plan. And foreknowledge of God. God ordained it. God ordained the conflict. He accomplishes so much of his purposes through it. It's important that we understand that because in conflict, when you find yourself in these troubles, are often those times when you actually think that God has abandoned you. And you're crying out and you're wondering why all this is happening to you and why people are turning against you and all these. And you you cry out and it doesn't seem like it does any good and you still have troubles. And these are the times when you're tempted to think that God's not there. And there are the times, honestly, when things aren't going your way and things aren't meeting your expectations, you begin to see conflict as an obstacle. When the Bible would teach you, you really ought to see it as an opportunity, an opportunity that the Lord has brought into your life, an opportunity to glorify God, an opportunity to learn more about your own weaknesses, an opportunity to see God's power at work, an opportunity to demonstrate the wisdom of God in contrast to the wisdom of the world. And if conflict is discouraging in general, it is especially discouraging in the church. Because this is the place that you look to as a refuge. This is a place where if you have conflict outside the world, it doesn't shock you. It doesn't surprise you. You kind of expect something like that. But when you come to the church, this is the place where you're supposed to be helped. This is a place where you're supposed to be built up. This is the place where you're supposed to be encouraged. And so to come to church and actually to find conflict there is shocking to a lot of people. And they make, it makes them think that maybe something has, has gone awry. This place where they hope to find peace and comfort and security or whatever it might be becomes suddenly a painful place. A painful place for them to come through the doors. A place where they are hurt rather than helped. And so it shouldn't surprise us when we look into the scripture and find That God ordains conflict to find that he actually ordains it even sometimes in the church. The church, of course, is made up of human beings. They're made up of imperfect creatures. Made up of a lot of people who continue to struggle with their own sin and their own flesh and their own weaknesses. It's not surprising then that you would find conflict among such a group. As a matter of fact, if ever there was an opportunity to show God's glory... And to put on display God's wisdom in conflict, it ought to be in the church. It ought to be with fellow Christians. If you hear nothing else that I say this morning, you ought to hear this. That God is in control of your conflict and your troubles. And he wants to use it. God is sovereignly working out his loving and divine purposes through your conflict. And if you understand the implications of the sovereignty of God over conflict it'll absolutely transform the way you respond to it and the way you respond to people in it. Now with that backdrop Paul's message to the Corinthians in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians becomes crystal clear. He's writing to a church ...that is wrapped up in conflict. You remember from the very beginning... ...back when we first opened up the pages of 1 Corinthians... ...almost a year ago we entered into, in verse 10, a discussion of conflict. There was conflict in this church. Conflict about personalities. Conflict about personal loyalties to other people. Conflict about competing styles between Paul and Apollos and Peter. And all of these factions and groups that were forming in the church. And even now, as we come to chapter 11, Paul is continuing to talk about conflict. He's talking about painful and Difficult situations in the church. And this is what he has to say to them here in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. He says in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you. In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's table that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. A context of what Paul's talking about is what we often refer to as the Lord's table or the Eucharist or the communion table, whatever it might be. And the ironic thing in this whole passage is that in the midst of a celebration of something that's supposed to talk about the unity of the body of Christ... Believers were having some of the most painful and hurtful experiences in their whole life. Right there in the heart of the church, right in the heart of their worship. And so Paul writes to them. And he wants them to realize two potential results that could come from any conflict that comes in your life and particularly in the church. He wants them to realize two potential results of these conflicts In the church. On the negative front, he wants them to realize the potential danger to their fellowship. That if these things go undealt with and unchecked, there is a tremendous danger. And we're told over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that we ought to understand the schemes of the evil one. And one of the basic schemes of the evil one is unforgiveness. That he uses unforgiveness and bitterness or whatever it might be in people's hearts. So we know generally that this is a danger. But Paul wants them to know specifically in their situation how this is ripping their fellowship apart. He says in verse 17, I don't want to give you any commendation. I can't give you any commendation in the following, the following instructions. That is, by the way, a contrast back to verse 2 where Paul did commend them he commended them for their faithful adherence in doctrine and doctrinal matters. But he says, here, I can't. I can't commend you because when you gather together for fellowship, it's not for the better, but for the worse. It is actually hurtful. It's damaging to people's walks. It's causing people to stumble. Of course, one of the prime purposes of the church When we come together is that we are supposed to build one another up. I mean, one of the one of the monumental verses on the church is in Ephesians four, where Paul says the body of Christ is to come together for the building up of itself that is building up of the body of christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of god to a mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of christ this is why we come together at least partly we gather together here not as just some sort of party and certainly not even as some mere evangelistic effort to reach others we gather on sunday morning for the prime purpose of glorifying god and edifying one another And so Paul says that's not happening in Corinth. Edification is no longer taking place because your fellowship is hurting one another. It's damaging one another. And in the context, or I should say all of this is said in the context of what Paul says eventually, is this communion table. As a matter of fact, in verses 23 and following, you have one of the most extensive passages in all of Scripture talking about communion. It's the passage we most normally read during the communion service. But in the broader sense, it wasn't just a communion table, because if you read the details here, they were, were, Paul says, getting drunk, and there were people going hungry. So so it wasn't just a, a little wafer of bread, and it wasn't just a small cup, maybe like we celebrate here, it obviously was a fuller meal that he's talking about, and And we just read this in its own context and in the context of places like Jude 12, which talk about a love meal among the body of Christ. And even historical documents tell us that the early church would often enjoy together this agape meal or this love meal that they would celebrate prior to the observance of communion. And so that's probably the context that Paul has in mind as he comes to talk about this, these churches were having this sort of full communal meal coming together prior to the official observance of the Lord's table, probably similar to what we would call a potluck. And, and they come together and share it as the whole church. This was mostly a dynamic of their society and their workday because these days, Sundays were not a holiday. They weren't a weekend weekend. They were a work day for most people. These Sundays were times when people would get up and go and do their jobs. And then at the end of the day, most likely, they would come together for their worship on Sunday. And and so it seems that they came together here at the end. But in verse 21, Paul says that some of them, coming together and coming together for this meal, were going ahead with their own food. Pro lombano is the word. It it implies a temporal uh, uh, precedence that they are doing this beforehand. And you shouldn't imagine it like our gatherings of a church where we're getting together at 9 a.m. in the morning, and so there must be some people showing up at 6 so that they can eat early. Now this is probably just uh, probably the people who were getting to the place of worship early in the afternoon bringing together all of their food and taking opportunity there early on to go ahead and eat before anyone else shows up. They were proceeding with their meal. And the ones who arrived later were most likely the lower class. They would have been the working class or in some cases the slaves who had to work longer hours or who didn't control their schedule or whatever it might be. And so there was this natural rift that was taking place, not only in a temporal sense, but in a socioeconomic sense. It was more the upper class, the wealthy people who were arriving early and eating their food early. And for them, this might have just made sense. This reflected society, because when you had a dinner party in Corinthian society, there was always a first table and a second table. Those were the terms they would use. They would refer to the first table as the table of the distinguished guest and the upper class and the elite people. And they would go to that table and sort of sit unto themselves. And not only would they have their own designated table, but they would often have extra portions. They would be the ones who would get a portion and a half or in some cases double portions if they were very significant. And so for them, this probably wasn't a problem. This is just what you did. This is what society did. You sort of had the elite eating by themselves and enjoying a meal to themselves and sort of staying away from the hoi polloi, all the common people. But Paul says, Paul says when they do this, They're humiliating those who are coming later. He says in verse 21, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Paul was suggesting, look, if you're hungry, why don't you eat at home? If you can't wait for the other people to show up, why don't you fill your stomach at home? Before you ever come. But to, get, to begin feasting together as perhaps the wealthy, the upper class, was to openly disdain those who not only showed up later, but probably showed up with less. Paul says they had nothing. That is to say, they were often coming straight from their workday. They had little or no opportunity to prepare their food. And if they had something, they probably brought very meager resources. And to sit there and have to eat that while they watch you feast on your bounty, he says, is ripping the church apart. It's humiliating them, he says, when one goes hungry. And another gets drunk. Shameful scene. A hurtful scene. To think about coming to church. You've got your struggles. And you've got your pain. And you've got your. Things that your obstacles. You're trying to overcome in your life. And to think that you would come to church. And people would be so insensitive. To what you're going through. So insensitive To the struggles of your own heart, and they would just flaunt in front of you blessings, their pleasure, whatever it might be. And so the sad reality is that this meal, which was commonly known as the agape meal, the love meal, was anything but that. There was anything but love taking place. There were schisms, factions forming in the church. They were supposedly preparing themselves for a communion meal afterward. Preparing themselves for this symbolic meal that symbolizes their togetherness. But in practice, they were avoiding one another. They were practicing division. And this is where so many churches descend. They do all this outward stuff They have all this appearance of worship, all this activity going on day to day. But in reality, it is one big display of hypocrisy. They're just going through the motions, but they're all ripped apart inside. Underneath the body of Christ is being ripped apart. Paul's word here is actually schemata for for these schisms or these divisions. It's a word for tearing cloth. They would use it for ripping clothing. And the church was being pulled apart by the seams from the insensitivity of believers to one another. And they were slowly fracturing underneath all the superficial appearance of their unity and their hypocritical games. Just like Paul said though back in chapter 1, 2, and 3 when he talked about The factions and divisions over personalities and personal loyalties and all that stuff. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. He eventually came around and said, Look, this isn't really about Paul or Apollos or anything. What it's about is your own selfish heart, your own fleshly, or some versions say carnal, spiritual life. You're childish, you're worldly minded. You're selfish, you're jealous, you're governed by human priorities. All of these things, those are the things that are really at the heart of all this conflict. It had to be an increasingly discouraging environment to try to keep going to a church like this. And fighting every time you show up because you're so offended. Fighting to maintain unity. But in the midst of all this discouragement. Paul wants them to realize not only for some that they're ripping the church apart and they're damaging their fellowship, but he wants them to realize on the positive side, this conflict may result in the demonstration of their faithfulness. He wants them to understand. That God ordains conflict. That he has useful purposes that it fits into his divine plan for you as an individual and for people as a church. And this is what he this is what he says to them here in verse 19. There must be factions among you. The word must, it's the word day in the Greek. It's sometimes called the the divine providence particle because it's used several times throughout the Gospels particularly, to talk about things which God has ordained. These things must take place, according to Scripture. And what Paul's saying is is that these things must. It is necessary. It is purposeful. It is a sanctifying thing which God has ordained. He wants them to look at this conflict not as an obstacle to their worship in Christ, but as an opportunity for them to really demonstrate their knowledge of who God is. He he wants them to understand that God will use this. And he says it here in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. This is really an amazing statement when you think about it. He's telling them that this conflict in the church is not only inevitable. It's inevitable because when you get a bunch of people together, you're going to have a lot of disappointment, right? He's saying not only that it's inevitable, he's saying it is necessary. It must happen that God regularly uses things like this in order to demonstrate the genuineness of you as an individual, and of your fellowship as a church. He regularly brings conflict into the body of Christ so that we can all demonstrate to one another our ability to apply the cross of Christ to our lives and prove what we really believe. Prove what we really understand about grace and forgiveness and long-suffering and all of these things. Some of your translations don't use the word genuine. It uses the word approved, but both of them are legitimate. Paul says that conflict is going to lead to the approval of some. Now, I want you to read that and think that what Paul's saying is that conflict must come in order that those who win may be approved that's the way we normally think about it. That's the way we normally read it. God's on the side of the winners, right? And so, so I've got to win this fight or I've got to beat this person or I've got to do whatever it might be. I've got to win because that's going to prove that God's with me. But that's not what he's saying. See, it's not whether or not you win or lose, but it's how you deal with the conflict. That's what Paul's talking about. I and mean, just think about it. If it's always the winner's, who, who we say that God is on their side. What does that say about Christ? Who was in a lot of conflict. Particularly with the Jewish leaders. And from a worldly. From a visible. From an outward standpoint. He didn't win. He was from the worldly sense. A loser. In that conflict. But of course we know. That it was the way that he laid down his life that proved that he was the good shepherd it proved the genuineness of who he was or joseph joseph was getting the short end of the stick over and over again as his brothers sold him into slavery and he was he was betrayed in prison and he was betrayed by his employer and all these things constantly in conflict constantly losing and yet, every time he realized that it wasn't about winning and losing, it was about doing what pleased the Lord and submitting himself under God's plan. See, this is what Paul's saying here it's not whether or not you win or lose that proves the genuineness of God's grace in your life, it's how you deal with the conflict. In other words, there are some people who will encounter conflict and they will demonstrate. That they know nothing of the grace of God. They know nothing of forgiveness. They know nothing about their own sin. They know nothing of the magnitude of how much they've been forgiven. Because they show no ability to forgive. You see some people when they get into conflict. There are all kinds of responses that they give. That would be illegitimate from a biblical standpoint. Some people for example just deny. They sort of just sweep it under the carpet. But of course you know, you know what happens with dirt that sweeps is swept under the carpet, right? It stays there. Or if you've tried that, you should look under the carpet. It's still there, right? But that's what people do. They they'll just kind of pretend. They'll pretend. While all the while there's buried in their heart this resentment and this bitterness and they won't let it go and they can't let it go and yet they go on just sort of denying that anything ever took place or, 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 or it may descend to the place where they begin to avoid other people which is sort of another response which is just fleeing. Some people respond to conflict by just fleeing. Sometimes it can be as little as a subtle coldness toward another person or a refusal when you're in their presence to show any kind of joy to always be gloomy, or to refuse to look someone in the eye, or to avoid them, or in extreme cases, to just leave the church, just flee away from your problems. Or for other people, they respond in the opposite direction, not by fleeing, but by attacking, sometimes verbally, sometimes even physically, sometimes whatever it might be, by intimidation, gossip, whatever those things, they try to corner you and, And compel you to surrender in fear of some consequence, just intimidation and assault. Scripture never justifies any of those things. Instead, when we look into the scripture, what we find is that we're called to be peacemakers. Jesus, in fact, said, Blessed are the peacemakers because they will be known as the children of God. Same thing, Paul's teaching that you will prove the genuineness of your relationship to God by being a peacemaker. You will be known as a child of God. And you'll prove it either one of two ways, either by an eagerness to seek forgiveness if you've offended someone or an eagerness to forgive those who've offended you. I mean, first of all, it might be just this eagerness to forgive. You understand that... Uh, that a man's wisdom gives him patience and it is his glory to overlook an offense as proverbs 19:11 says and so you're eager to find a way to overlook those offenses and to understand that God has been gracious with you and understand all the times that you failed God and all the times he's overlooked your sin and each time you find God's abundant and free and inexhaustible grace and so you want to turn around and demonstrate that same kind of abundant and free and inexhaustible grace to others and so the believer out of humility and out of An understanding of what he himself has received is eager to show that to someone else. I mean, at times, it may be too big of a thing. You can't just overlook it, and so you have to go and you have to speak to someone one-on-one. But even then, the Scripture says... That in the genuineness of your faith, you'll go humbly examining yourself. Jesus said it this way, before you deal with the speck in someone else's eye, you will take the time to deal with the log in your own. And all of this, he says, will prove the genuineness of your faith. And so you might go through that process, even speaking to a brother or sister, talking through issues, seeking forgiveness or granting forgiveness. But God uses, you see, the entire process. To prove your faith and to prove theirs. He uses it to sanctify you and to sanctify them. To show you your sinfulness and to show them theirs. So that we can all grow together. Or your genuineness might be proved simply not by forgiving others, but by seeing the need to seek forgiveness. When your sin has been shown to you. Someone's pointed it out, and you humbly confess, and you seek their forgiveness, and God uses that. This is what Paul wants them to understand. Conflict is brought by God, and He ordains it. And far from thinking that God has somehow left you and abandoned you, far from thinking that somehow He's nowhere in the picture, He is right in the middle of the picture. He's right there wanting to use your troubles to do a work in your heart, to do a work in your church, to do a work to glorify Him. It must come. It must come. God constantly using these processes, putting you in situations, seeing how you respond, seeing if the grace... That you say you so truly believe. Is really. Active. In your life. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord we are grateful for this very. Helpful reminder. For when we are tempted to think that somehow you have. Have stepped aside from your throne, your word brings us back to let us know that you have never ceased to reign. You've never ceased to rule and to use your sovereign power and your plan to bring about your glory. So Lord, I pray for each one of us. I pray for each person in this church that each one of us would embrace the troubles in our lives As simply another expression of your goodness. To work on us and through us. Lord I pray that we would be those who respond in genuineness. Examining ourselves. Looking at the logs in our own eyes. Where necessary going and dealing with brothers and sisters. In love, grace, gentleness. Bringing about peace. Because, Lord, we want to be known as your children. We want to be known as peacemakers. We want to embrace every opportunity you give to glorify our Savior in the grace and forgiveness he's brought into our life, living it out. So we ask for your help in Christ's name.